Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Disco Posse podcast, and I'm your host, Eric Wright. Thank you for joining us today. This is another fantastic chat. I was very, very lucky to be at Tech Field Day's Cloud Field Day event recently, and I ran into the team at Stormforge. And in meeting Yasmin from Stormforge, she's leading out their engineering and product strategy and product management. Super cool. She's fantastic. We talk a lot about both the sort of the Stormforge interesting challenge around Kubernetes and, and some of the stuff they're doing, as well as just her whole approach to a very human experience driven product building and, and product strategy. Really, really fun stuff when we go into her own background, but definitely worth a listen, especially if you're digging into the Kubernetes goodness. But before we get started, I cannot go without sharing the amazing people that make this podcast happen. So I've got to give a big thanks to the fine folks at Veeam Software. They've been longtime supporters, and I'm really digging all the stuff they're doing with AWS reInvent coming up. Of course, we're going to hear a lot more about people putting their stuff in the cloud, whether they're using Kubernetes, whether they're using traditional infrastructure as a service, whatever it is. Heck, remember that hybrid thing? Well, we run data centers. I mean, there's so many things that need to be protected. You got data all over, you got applications all over. How do you make sure that are not just protected, but recoverable? And in fact, great things they can do around disaster recovery and business continuity. They got you covered. Everything you need for your data protection needs, whether it's on-prem, in the cloud, in your data center, whatever it is, go check it out. So with that, I'm going to make sure that you head on over to vee.am forward slash discoposse and you can see all about what they're doing. Okay, now the fun part. You're building that organization. You're building your startup. You want to make sure your message is consistent. You need to get your, your brand out there. How do you do it with the most effective people? that can drive your message and deliver real sales results. Easy. You take elite athletes and you turn them into elite sales professionals. How do you do it? You go to Shift Group. JR and the team at Shift Group are taking these people that are incredible high performers and he's giving them the training they need, creating a culture of effective sales organizations. They don't just hire people. This is not a body shop. This is a success shop. They come in, they help you to build your organization. They put the people in place, whether it's SDRs, BDRs, all the way up to account executives and everything in between. So go on over to shiftgroup.io and check it out. All right, with that, let's jump in. This is Yasmin from Stormforge. Hi, my name is Yasmin from Stormforge and you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. That you're gonna get a job on radio now. It's, uh, I'm, you're taking over the podcast now, Yasmin. Thank you so much for for joining. This is really cool. We had a chance to meet and chat a bunch, which led up to the opportunity to chat here. Uh, I was really impressed by what you and the team are doing with you know at Stormforge and just in general in the industry. We, for folks that may know, I'm also part of uh, the Tech Field Day delegate community. So I was lucky enough to meet you at Cloud Field Day. Uh, I'll have links below as well for folks that want to go and check out the Cloud Field Day sessions. They were fantastic. Uh, and we'll talk a lot about sort of what the Stormforge, you know, what's the problem we're solving, what's sort of the reason that brought you to it, because you yourself have 
a pretty storied history uh, coming into the industry with with a really cool background. Um, but let's start with you. For people that are brand new to you, uh, let's uh, tell uh, tell your story, and then we'll start with the the Stormforge problem. Awesome. Uh, so uh, my name is Yasmin, and I'm currently VP of Product at Stormforge, and I've been here for maybe five months now, but kind of it feels like I've been here forever, uh, just because of how the team's great. Um, it's a very like close knit uh, engineering product org, uh, so that's been a lot of fun. Um, and the problem space has been really exciting, so I'm super happy to be at Stormforge. And prior to Stormforge, I spent a little over five years at Puppet, so in the infrastructure management space. And then prior to that, I spent about five years as well um, at Staples, and I was in SRE. So kind of made the transition from a customer to software vendor. This is definitely the space I love. And as infrastructure uh, evolves and changes, then you know I wanted to be a part of that. So that's what brought me to Stormforge. Well, I think that's one of the most compelling pieces of of many things that I really enjoy about your background coming into this position now is that uh, I felt that my best opportunity in the vendor space was because of the live working lived experience that I had in running real environments. And it's, it's actually pretty rare because you find often you get sort of, we talk about people that are born in the cloud or born in Kubernetes. Well, how about being born in, in the vendor space? A lot of people immediately launch into working for a vendor. And I had some fantastic, even SEs that I worked with who literally have never put fingers to keyboards in a real environment in their lives, but they're like talking about solutions and, and problems. I'm like, wow, that's, that's wild. Like, how can you really feel like, obviously they do a fantastic job and, and there's, there's reasons why that, that works, but it's close to my heart when I know that you like, you did it. You really did it. <laughs> so it must, it's so fun to get on the other side of it now. Yeah, totally. And uh, it's like the pain is different and it's a good pain, I guess it's a learning pain, but when you're at a large enterprise, you feel it more scope to your enterprise and how you're dealing with some of the challenges. And then moving into the vendor space, what was really cool is then you get to see a similar pain point across multiple enterprises and how everyone's a little bit different in how they tackle it. And at least for me, like moving from customer to software vendor, I had to really stop myself from biasing of, okay, here's how we did it at Staples. Here's how our e-commerce worked. Here's how we did our config management at the time. And not assume that that way was the same way that other, like a large financial company, for example, is going to um, address the problem. So I think that's what's really cool about being on the vendor side. You get to see that at scale across so many different types of industries and the challenge is the same, but the way that they tackle it and the way it impacts them is slightly different. Yeah, this is the interesting thing of having a, just enough bias, I would say, is actually appropriate because you can actually say that you you ran into a problem that was you know seemingly impassable and you solved that problem and you tried a bunch of different things. So that, again, like that lived experience, it helps to like color and sort of infuse that thinking when you're then building a product, which is really impressive because now you've already got that mindset going in. Cause quite often I would even go with my, my team, my previous company and they'd, you know, they'd stand up their lab and they'd be like, Hey, we've, you know, I, I test out the product feature and it would, it would, I'd hit a wall in like three minutes. I'm like, that's weird. Like this, it doesn't seem to work when it crosses, you know, into a second node on a cluster. And they're like, 
Oh yeah, because we're running on, you know, we're you know, we were using like DevStack for the OpenStack implementation. I'm like, wow, that's that's a terrible idea. Like no one, no one would run a single node, you know, environment, you know, or same thing. I'm like, everybody runs multiple data centers in in the VMware ecosystem. And you get to Kubernetes, and like there's every pattern that we see in real life, it's often not felt by engineers who are ironically having to write bloody solutions for these problems and yet they never like they don't often get the exposure they need into a real working environment yeah that's a honestly a challenge that we talk about at stormforge because you know we're we're a small lean company and we can get a lot done because an engineer can for example work with the security team get what we need provision our infrastructure deploy test our code um and then when we talk about that from a user's perspective of one engineer getting software even approved to run in a POC, for example, involves a lot of steps, involves a lot of communication between the teams, explaining them what the value is, making sure that they're bought in so that they can do the approvals. And what for us is maybe a one, two step process in a large organization becomes just exponential. So thinking about as a user, how, how do I go through that process and how do we as a vendor make it super simple for that end user? I mean, I can already hear it and even in the time that we spent together, Cloud Field Day, like you, you, you genuinely think of the, that direction, and it's it's very. That's what I was. I really I wanted to, to chat with you on this podcast because like you always think of like what what are, what's the customer problem, and then what can we do to enable and empower that person, and that's it is really tough because you have to have this real throw yourself at the problem mentality. And as a vendor, you ultimately have to have a, like, we are, we have a unique novel way in which we're solving this problem that is differentiated from others. And thus you have to like wholly believe that you are the ones that can do it, but to still retain that humility of the customer experience and the customer problem and the human experience by it is it's, it's, it's rare. It is sadly a rare thing. So that's why you, you really stood out as someone I I, I admire in, in how you approach the problem. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think uh, I'm in a lucky spot and I have been in a lucky spot where I work with really smart engineers that have solved the, the hard parts of the technical solution. We have something that actually works and they're open. And I like, I don't know if this is rare. I've just been coincidentally very lucky, but they're very open into, I want to get this into customers' hands. So how can I do that? How can I make that process easier? It's not like, oh, we need to fix this thing because it makes it really difficult for the user and then they get offended or something. It's like, no, how can I make this very simple for the user? I want to get this technology into their hands. So it's been, it, I think that partnership is super important between product and engineering. And I have been in cases where it's not totally there. So I think I'm just, it. I'm very happy to have had lucky situations where the teams have been so collaborative. Yeah, it's, I do believe there's a certain amount of self-selection that does occur that, like they say, you know, like I call it exposure to luck. You know, there's a certain amount of luck that we have. And goodness knows, I, I, I've i been exposed to a lot of luck, but you go out of your way to expose yourself to more luck. <laughs> so you, you do true. generally lead yourself towards, uh, you know, the fly to the lantern type of, of opportunities, which is good. But I guess we should really... Let's let's start with Stormforge, right? What is the Stormforge story, and and what's the the problem that you and the team are solving? Yeah, uh, so Stormforge actually has a really cool story. So um, it started out with a few people and a really good machine learning algorithm, 
And initially that was applied to uh, large like facilities and reducing power. And um, what's really cool is they started down that problem and we're solving it for like large companies, think large facilities. And um, what their takeaway was, okay, this is great. It's doing it, but this is a lot of handholding. It's a lot of services, for example. So it's long sales cycles, that sort of thing. And at the time, Kubernetes was starting to gain a lot of traction and the team internally was using Kubernetes uh, for some of the internal apps. And then a light bulb moment happened and it was like, wait a minute, this is a problem. We could attach this algorithm to this challenge of uh, once you start using Kubernetes at scale, it becomes way more complex. There's way more settings you have to handle. And then once you provision, you usually find yourself a little bit over provisioned, maybe sometimes a lot of it. And um, I think that part of the Stormforge story is really what attracted me to the company because they had something that worked and it was working for them at the time, but they kind of took a step back and said, as a company, if we pivoted, there's a lot more opportunity here. And that's what we've seen over the last, like I'd say six years. Uh, and the team takes that approach to most problems of, are we solving the right problem? How can we uh, help our users at the end of the day and then do it in a very efficient manner? So the goal at Stormforge with our users is how can we help them become more efficient? How can we help them take the guesswork out of, you know, you're handling a couple settings, which is fine that first single application, but once you start multiplying that by the thousands in real time, how are you thinking through what an application, for example, CPU memory requests and limits should be? How do you know you're tuning your settings to the appropriate settings? Um, that's a lot for humans to do. So we take the machine learning approach and take that guesswork out of it, use the machine learning to tell you what your settings should be, and then also actually deploy that for you. So it's one piece to even just figure out what it should be. The other is automatically deploying that. As you know, like large organizations, deploying change is not an easy thing. Um, and we do that to make people more efficient, which as a result reduces their costs as well. And this is the interesting thing of, again, why I, I often think approach over approach outcome platform. It's a very like that order, kind of like people process technology. So the approach is that if we think of it as like the, the algorithm ultimately is the core, you know, it worked in another case. And, and if we change the artifacts, then ultimately that algorithm and algorithm has a purpose and and it can generate an outcome that is now you know, you know advances human capability, which is cool. So the approach is neat, and that you solved a problem, and then you reuse that approach, and we're able to solve a different problem by simply changing the artifact, which is like we love that. And then there's the idea of you know now can we solve the problem and have an outcome, which in this case, as we know, you know the the sustainability piece is actually super cool because, hey, Earth is burning up by the second if we can cut down a couple of, of, of watts of usage and ultimately cost and other things. We kind of underplay the efficiency story sometimes because it's not yeah, like VCs don't necessarily line up going, hey, is there a way that we can save somebody like 11% on their on their Kubernetes bill? Like, you know, no, no, no people are racing to solve that problem, but it's a huge problem. It's every single environment that runs these, you know, Kubernetes as a platform or even any cloud ecosystem there, they have this problem. So you've got the, the efficiency story. However, there's performance, there's decisions, there's automation, there's so much other stuff there. And then it becomes now the platform 
which again, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you folks out because I just, I really dig how this has all come together and that it wasn't just about number one, you have to be able to observe the environment. You have to be able to know what's going on. So we pull in analytics, we do stuff. And then, okay, now we take, we make decisions around that. And that, that decision automation is obviously the, it's like the secret sauce. That's where the, the nifty part is. But almost every solution out there is like, okay, here you go, YAML jockey, go fix it, right? And like, they just, like you, you can see a report of things you should do, you know, like, Hey, I get a report from my financial advisor and I'm like, just, just make the trade, dude. I, I don't tell me what you, what needs to be yep. done. Just bloody do it and tell me, show me the results. And so the fact that you can go to the final stage and then infuse that change through action is uh, something again, near and dear to my heart, because then it becomes the human challenge that you solve, which is the real problem of like, how do we map to whether it's pipeline integrations or general standard operating procedures and just you know change review boards? Oh yeah, I can I'm getting like PTSD memories just from sitting through change review boards every week. But uh so anyways, I don't want to just sit here and like cheer your folks on, but that's all of the all the checkboxes are there and actually I mean, you're you're doing great work with some really fantastic companies too. So uh, maybe I'd love to hear a customer story because that's like my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so I I want to go into a customer story, but I want to touch a little bit on what you just mentioned of the action part being important. Because going yeah. back to what we were talking about earlier, at the end of the day, it's humans and large organizations. Um, I was talking to a customer maybe about a few weeks ago now, uh, and we were going through their challenge of what they have today. They They have reporting tools that tell them cost. And they have a central team that goes back to the developers and like, you're over provisioned. Here's what it's costing us. You need to go fix this. And that's where the conversation ends. That internal team doesn't have the, uh, I don't want to say accountability, but they're not the ones that can actually go in and deploy the changes. So they, what they're responsible for is providing that information to the development teams. And then the development teams, like, great, I appreciate that, but I have all these other things on my list to do. So it's not top of mind for them to go in and reconfigure. And I think that's where it really breaks down in organizations where if you can't actually take it the full last mile and provide the action, then you're just one more thing on a list of many things an engineer has to do throughout their day. And it's yeah, basically software, put it in the backlog, right? Which is, you know, right yeah. next to the Ark of the Covenant in the Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> no, you'll never see that thing again. A task is not going to be done. Yeah. As soon as someone tells you, oh yeah, I'll add it to the backlog. Okay. You're not going to see that. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's the, that's the engineer's version of bless your heart. <laughs> I was actually in the South uh, this last week and I heard that a lot. So it's very relevant. Um <laughs> And I think as software vendors, that's what's super important for us to realize that engineers have things to do to move the business forward. There's a list of things on their plate. And how can we reduce that list and make it easier for them to achieve the outcomes they want versus just adding to that ever-growing list that someone has to go out and tackle? Yeah. And the again, sort of the humility approach, which maybe I'm just too Canadian that I focus on this too much, but like I've like if somebody comes to me and they say the only way that I can get value from the thing you're doing is to like turn it on right to the final mile. And you're like, well, there's there's a lot of steps in between and I need to coach my team through it. I need to get the confidence in it. And it's always that like automation. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of automation, 
and like I automate everything I can. I make coffee. It takes me 22 minutes to make my morning coffee because I'm an idiot and I love like this AeroPress. It's a whole scene, right? So, and people are like, that's weird. You know, you're like the automation guru. I'm like, yeah, because I want to not do stuff that I don't care about so that I can spend time doing something that I care about. When I'm a developer, I want to write code, not quota, you know, configuration for my app as I'm pushing it into, into my live environment. And then even worse, they do testing in development and they're like, that's pretty much as the old open stack. They would say, Hey, it's funny. It worked in dev stack. Like, Oh yeah. I wonder why it doesn't work in production. <laughs> yeah, totally. And uh, where we, you asked for a customer story. So a success story we've had is a platform team that we are working with that is responsible for kind of taking off some of that lift from the engineering team, like the domain teams. And um, their responsibilities are to provide the, kind of, I would say an easy on-ramp to provisioning infrastructure, dealing with all the configurations, dealing with the cost management, their their sole responsibility is that. Um, and they wanna keep their reliability high uh, and ensure resiliency of their app. And then they also wanna reduce their costs because they're uh, a SaaS-based company, they're growing, they're seeing a lot of success, as you can imagine, their uh, cloud costs are increasing. And I think what uh, helped this relationship be successful is the platform team internally when they're looking at, okay, we're, um, they're using the HPA today, they're scaling out. And as a result, they're finding themselves to be very over-provisioned. And so when they took a step back to say, okay, now we need to go revisit these settings and um, look at how we can reduce res less resources, it was impossible. It was like five settings, but across like, hundreds of processes, different environments, that whole problem we've talked about, that just is not something that humans can do at scale continuously. I think right. as one-off, sure, um, as more a focused, targeted in this dev environment, it becomes easier if you decide to spend the time on it. But at scale and production, it's impossible. And so uh, what we were able to do is work with them on deploying our software against one of their applications. And they found immediately a 60% reduction, which like, is a lot when you think about at scale across multiple environments. If you apply that 60%, those are real numbers. The fun part that if we think as like, especially the startup problem and, and a platform problem too, is like that first, when you get the sort of heroic first number, but I'm curious, you know, it, every product will go through this where we have like that one year point where you're like, so where's my, where's my next 60%? You're like, it's been retained because you're running in production this way. There is this, like this sort of long tail advantage of getting automation in place. But then there's also the weird problem of like finding the right stickiness level where people are using the product, but also seeing the results or understanding that there's these sort of virtual results that are occurring. You almost need to show like a dotted line of if we weren't working, this is where you'd be. But now that the product's in place, like being able to show continual gain, how are you making sure that you can keep showing people, hey, there's stuff going on? Yeah, totally. I'm. That's a challenge we're working on right now because, uh, for example, if we, you know, that customer environment saved them 60%, um, they might make changes to their application that now need to consume more resources. Technically, that means resource cons consumption goes up 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that savings are lost. It's the application naturally has changed and needs more. And I think that's where we, it's not just that we'll tell you, hey, you could reduce your resources, but you might be under-provisioned and you might be uh, dealing with resiliency issues. And that's where we can actually tell you. Our recommendations maybe would say you need more memory, for example. Um, and what we're working on in, as a team is how can we display that back to the user? We show them Grafana charts of, okay, we uh, here's where you currently were, here's what we've recommended, whether that's higher or lower uh, for their application. But tying that back to, for example, if you were under-provisioned and we gave you new recommendations, here are outages that you could have had that we've been able to um, foresee and, and help reduce. Or over time, as your application has changed, here's an aggregate sum of all of the savings we're able to provide. So I think to your point, like the initial gratification is great, but we need to, since the application continuously changes as new business requests come in, we also continuously provide that information back to the user to show them how this is happening at scale. Yeah, the, this is not a this is not a broken clock problem where you just kind of get lucky and it's right twice a day. Like these, these things do change and they should, you know, there's, especially in this particular platform as an underlay that Kubernetes is generally going to be used by platform teams and development teams that can leverage the scalability. And I think more applications are getting into the advantage space of, of really using it. That being said, there's probably still going to be some traditional legacy stuff Oh yeah, that's right. There you go, kids. We're going to put VMs on there and we're going to have long running, you know, VM style infrastructure in Kubernetes just because we say, look, let's just move to it and then we can maybe refactor or repurpose. But in the end, there's actually nothing wrong with long running infrastructure in Kubernetes as long as it can survive a restart and it's like the pattern of the application matches. But then to that point, that also increases the complexity of your consumption problem because you've got super stable, like just eaten consistent resources. And then you've got varying resources and there's just way too much variance for a, a normal human like you. We're smart people, but like this stuff moves around all the time. And the, the, the last thing you want is to be responsible for like quota management. Seriously, this is, this is where I'm going to spend my day. <laughs> totally. Um, and I think that's where kind of our platform shines of, you have the continuous real-time looking at data providing recommendation. And then we have uh, part of the platform allows for deeper experimentation. So for those more, uh, I'd call them stable, like long running, you might, uh, what we found like sometimes talking to users is they really think that their application is um, either properly tuned on CPU or uh, they, they know which settings are the most impactful to that application. And we'll run these experiments and look at 20 to 30 different parameters and find that an application is actually very sensitive to a completely different metric that we, you know, until you get to that deeper level, you might not know. And that allows them to kind of take a second and look back at their application and make sure that they're tuning and experimenting on the right set of metrics. And um, I found that to be very po powerful in the larger orgs that are like, okay, at large scale, I want to set it and forget it and have that happen in real time. But there are certain apps where I want to really dig deeper and right. um, do that level of experimentation. And that's, I think, the flexibility of the platform approach that we kind of use with uh, larger organizations. Yeah, running that running that scenario is important because it, it also means, you know, as 
as we know, we test in production and then to be able to have sort of that predictive capability to, to know what it's going to, how it's going to behave, especially we're getting new processor families come out all the time and, and we're going to see the differences, you know, in the end, we're probably going to see chances where code really truly is abstracted from the actual processor underlay. That will be the, you know, the super hypervisor or the super cloud of like this true abstraction where we totally hide processor, you know, idiosyncrasies, but advantages at the same time by making it vanilla. That just means there's also no chocolate or strawberry, but I like chocolate. I like strawberry. <laughs> I like vanilla too. So by taking away stuff, that's actually not solving the problem. We want to be able to use those tunables and then really take the greatest advantage of it. And like most platforms are just like, nah, just, just sort of close enough, you know, and, and we'll just put it out there. <laughs> that's been a really uh, fun use case, I'd say, in the last uh, few months, at least since I've been here, of we've been working with customers to figure out uh, their workloads, which, what type of hardware they run better on. So is it Intel? Is it um, AMD? Like that's been really cool. Or for example, Graviton, uh, AWS right. has been um, putting a lot of investment into Graviton. It's something when I was at Puppet, really seeing the growth of that, uh, which was super cool. But um, we are machine learning gives you the ability to detect what workloads run on what type of hardware, which is a super cool use case um, that's been way more common. I'd say the last like few months has been coming up a lot. Because it gives you, because because you've got the understanding of the capabilities and you now have the data for the workload, you could ostensibly, and you may already do this today, you could present almost an A-B scenario of like, hey, you know, if, if given the ch can't, chance, you, know, you could re-platform over here and get that advantage, you know, not just like deploy it there and then optimize it in place, but you could then present a predictive scenario for folks to say like this particular app, way cooler if we go to Graviton 2, Graviton 3, whatever the you know platform of choice is going to be. Exactly, which is super cool. We were uh, working with a customer who is running uh, Kubernetes on-prem and in their decision of what kind of hardware do we want to run this on, that's part of the experimentation process. So then they can just see that exactly what you said, like A-B testing of which one's better and then go back to the teams and say, this is the choice we want to make. And we're unbiased about it. So we the machine learning runs and tells you what it is. And that answer might be different depending on your workloads. Yeah, that's always the fun part too, is like I've I remembered working with uh with a couple of tech partners <clears throat> in sort of a similar style of of thing where people are like, oh great, so you can optimize you know, how the workloads run on infrastructure and like that's cool. So you could run it against our infrastructure and it would show that we're a better choice and like. I don't know that I can do that. It's up to the workload. <laughs> so being able to present that unbiased, unvarnished output, it's a big boost for the customer because then they know they're like, I'm getting the best result for my application, not based on my existing partnerships, you know, that you've got as a, as a company, but yet it also opens you up to be able to work with a lot of different tech partners as a, as an organization, which is, which is cool and not be sort of, you know, people like, even if you develop a partnership with a company, they know that the, the algorithm doesn't care about your partnership. The algorithm cares about the performance and the efficiency. The partnership's a business advantage, but the performance advantage comes from the platform, which is, uh, which is nice.
Yeah. And I think that's something our uh, partners have found very powerful because it's not a bias. It's a real answer saying like these types of workloads run better on this type of hardware. Uh, and um, that's, or this type of platform. That's what's been uh, really powerful, I think, as a part of the partnership that we give that unbiased look. And um, it's almost an emotional roller coaster of waiting for the experiment to run and say like, what's the result going to be? Now, the one thing I want to tap into is this idea of, you know, you came from platform engineering yourself. You were an SRE with Staples and you've got a lot of experience in that sort of platform ops type environment or an SRE. We use those phrases a lot sometimes, but what I've often found myself, maybe I'm again, because I came more traditionally into the virtualization camp. And then got into OpenStack and cloud native stuff, and and you know, so I see the I see a wide spectrum of titles and actual functional roles. And what I found was that a lot of the people I was talking to, they're suddenly they're cloud ops or they're called a platform ops team. I'm like, where are eighty percent of your workloads? Like, oh, and VMware. Like, you're not really a platform ops team. Then you're you're a VMware administrator, and they've just called you platform ops. So I'm curious, Yasmin. In your customer space and even in the ecosystem, what are you seeing as this like SRE platform ops? Is it is it real? Yeah, that's a, a great comment. I'd say when I was uh, in SRE at Staples, platform engineering wasn't a cool trend at the time. Um, it was back when you know SRE was still the cool thing. Uh, but at the end of the day, the responsibilities of the team was to ensure resiliency, ensure uptime, make the developers' lives easier through automation. And I'd say, thanks to my time at Puppet, I've been able to see those titles change over time. To your point, like cloud ops, sometimes it's just an internal cloud team. Like uh, they've used VMware, they've built internal cloud, which more power to them. That's great automation, being able to pr uh, provision infrastructure easily and provide that to developers is great. But those titles are very fungible from my experience of uh, whether it's DevOps, it's SRE, platform engineering. Uh, but I do think we're seeing a move towards the internal teams that are providing these services to uh, development teams. And I don't think necessarily that's a novel or new idea, but having that be more ingrained in the DNA of how the enterprise works and being able to tackle the things like toil, you know, uh, people talk a lot about toil, being able to use automation to solve those problems is something that now in the world of Kubernetes, it's just by default, you have to have it. It would be impossible to have a purely just developers writing uh, writing code, deploying that code, and then no one is managing that. Um, and I think that's where, you know, the shift where it was a nice to have, now it's a need to have. Yeah, this is the, I want, I want you to share the toil when you describe that, because it's always good to get everybody's sort of view of it, because we talk about technical debt was sort of a, the thing we use as a generic term to describe it. But a lot of people really struggle with like what exactly is technical debt. When we get into toil, again, living both sides of of that, I'd love to sort of have your your definition and 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 what you've seen in a real environment that we would describe as sort of the toil pain scenario. Yeah. So uh going into the Wayback Machine. Uh in my time at uh Staples, so I worked in SRE on the e-commerce side and um my team was responsible for the instrumentation, so all the monitoring, the tools that uh, were there. And, you know, sometimes we'd have outages and we'd be able to track that. 
And even though we had rollback scripts, we had the automation in place, often what it really meant was someone had to log into a machine and run a reboot and then we're back up. And that's the type of toil where, you know, point in time, automation's in place. Theoretically, you should be good. It still ends on a single human being able to go in and know, have the access, be able to go in, fix the thing at that time. That type of toil nowadays uh, at the scale of Kubernetes, like that has to be addressed with automation. It's and this is what's funny because I I had a, a unique spin on this approach that I was like automation centric, but there's there's triggers and gates at which you have to be careful because I worked in business continuity for a long time. So doing disaster recovery, I had stuff that like I could just, you could wipe out a data center and just be like, shut it down, go for it. I've like had stuff that like we came in one day and all of a sudden like, yeah, file serving seems to be a little bit slow for some reason. Like, oh, right, because the network went down and we're now running our file serving out of across the country and no one noticed yep. except the like a little alert window and it was like oh cool so that level of automation for failover was there but there are some things where you're like okay a failure has occurred but is it a deep enough failure that we actually need to fail over everything and there was way more human involvement in making that decision because the applications didn't have pattern awareness to be able to do failover necessarily. And there was like internal stuff. Now, Kubernetes applications, again, if you're old 12-factor perfect, which zero people are, it's it'll just work. It'll just show up somewhere else. It'll deploy on a new cluster. I'm like, yeah, right. You ever heard of, I got oom kills flying out my ears on one cluster for no reason. I have no idea what's going on. Like, oh yeah, because we just over-provisioned into something and it's just burying the cluster. So there's reprovisioning. While automated is cool, there are certain human triggers that we have to watch out for. So now I'm curious in that in this now new platform ops thing, what is still a human thing that needs to be done that like will always stay inherently human? It's a good question. Um, I think it kind of depends on the industry and you know the the organization and where they're at of what ends up being human. Um, I've worked with some customers where the security process is still heavily human. Um, there's a lot of automation in place, but at the end of the day, for something to get deployed, the scan process, the here's what we found, hand it over to a team. There's still a lot of human interaction there where you would want that to be more a part of your pipeline, scan something, find something, fix it. Um, and I've seen that come up a lot of still being a human process. Uh, I think as much as we want monitoring and um the ability to watch a platform and find issues, there's still always going to be humans that in in depth know the application better than anything else. Uh, so that part of it is something where I think we're working on for analytics to be able to show you more insights into your application to be able to handle a lot of that. But still, it's informed by the humans that know the platform better than any type of automation. That automation still has to be fed by humans of here's how I want things to work when things go down. Yeah, and I guess this is where it's interesting, where the definition of normal, especially when it comes to you know the depth of instrumentation you need to be able to do in a Kubernetes environment, and then as you get further down, like if, let's say you're running a Redis cache, a distributed Redis cache in your environment, and then you've got one machine that's running a local you know RocksDB environment. So 
exactly the same pattern where they're using this, you know, log structure merge, but one's distributed, one's localized, both have the same application pattern in like this idea of hierarchical staging of memory into potentially flash storage. Well, so it's going to be vastly different in how it behaves as it scales and all these other things. And so it may look completely normal that it's just loaded. Like the memory is just totally maxed out. And you're like, that's good. And then you've got another application where you're like, the memory's maxed out. You're like, that's bad. <laughs> because if you're running a, a an LSM tree, you know, cache structure, it should be 95% living in memory. That's the whole bloody purpose. But all of these other things, you know, that's the trick with optimization is you have to have some level of awareness of the application. And a lot of it's human infused of being able to market, tag it, like label it, whatever. And I, can I just, this is my, my gripe. I apologize. You're going to listen to my gripes, but thing, can we all just stop calling them labels? I get it. Kubernetes. You think you're original, even Azure used to call their areas data centers. And now they call them, you know, availability zones. Cause Hey, Everybody else calls tags for everything. Labels are tags. There you go. Sorry, that's my end rant. My bad. <laughs> You're not the only one ranting on that. I feel like I've heard that now a few times. <laughs> so where is, I love to say, where are you folks today with sort of that infusing human and application awareness into like the optimization engine and, and where do you see that going in future? Yeah, um, I because you know you're never 100% going to take the human out of it that's where for us in an ideal world we would love to just let the machine learning run don't give any inputs to it take the outputs and and deploy it and some people do want to run in that way but we know reality is users want to have a little bit more control over what inputs goes into the magic and so for us we give users that ability to constrain the machine learning so whether that's uh, you want to actually put in constraints to the memory recommendation that you'll get, um, or it's constraints into uh, the level of how aggressive it'll be uh, for the recommendations that get deployed. We allow the users to put in those inputs so the humans do feel like they have a level of control. And we also give uh, flexibility on, for example, if you want to export that YAML and what you want to do with it at the end of the day, uh, we provide those uh, both from an input and an output level of flexibility. So now on the, uh, I'm going to make you lay out an opinion here. We're going to, well, uh, this, this could be it. This could be the career ender right here. Yasmin. No, I'm just kidding. That, what in your view is the most important thing that Kubernetes brought to our tech ecosystem? And also what's the riskiest thing it presents today? Hmm. I think I'm going to answer that. And uh, the thing that made it easier is also the thing that made it riskier. Um, the, and I don't, the word easy is probably not the right word because it's not necessarily easier. Um, but how much, I'm going to use the word easier, how much easier it is for a developer to have code running on infrastructure. That process has changed things dramatically. Like I, I can go back to my Staples days where you know, we had an internal cloud, I'll request some VMs and I'll get something maybe a day later. And that was considered fast at the time. So yeah. that ability to reduce that process to way less steps and much faster has been, I think, one of the biggest impacting things the last few years. 
Um, however, the risk in that also is how easy it is to just provision infrastructure and run code on it. And that's where we get into these um, situations where we've just either over-provisioned or we're at scale and we can't operate. And uh, so what has made things really easier and impactful has also made things riskier. I think virtualization did that. I remembered being like a very early adopter of VMware and you know, to the point where like my my boss didn't actually know what was going on. It's just like, well, we're really doing great. We're handling all the developer inbound requests for applications. We've got this like proprietary content management system and we're just able to like, you only bought one server. How come you're deploying like 35 applications this month? I'm like, I got you covered. <laughs> Not realizing, of course, that that was even like pre-Vmotion. That was just like, I could virtualize and, and divide the hardware. But at that point, I then began running running like heroic levels of virtualization. Like I'm talking like 40 to one ratios, which is super risky, but it was possible. And like you said, in that same way of like all the advantages it gave me introduced this incredible both business and technical risk by not knowing how to scale it, not knowing you know, what the patterns seem to change. Because at that point, the developer is just like, oh, it's just free, right? I just, I just request an application and it's there, right? Or even better, a self-service portal. And you're like, oh yeah, no, no, it's not free. You know, it's like, it comes out of your taxes. <laughs> Nothing's free. Yeah. <laughs> and when it feels free, they're just going to ask for as much as they can get. And um, then folks that are in platform engineering, for example, have to deal with the ramifications of that. Or the CIO is getting the conversation of like, the, C, uh, the CFO is saying, hey, our cloud bill is really high. What? How did that happen? It's because it was so easy to provision and use the infrastructure. And I guess that's an important thing, right? We've, well, say operationally, the solution, the problem space and the solution space that Stormforge and, and you are living in is very fundamental. And then you mix that now with cost. And this is a big, big boost, right? Because all of a sudden people are like, oh yeah, you've got pundits on both sides going like, well, you know, people are telling us we need to retract our cloud spend. And you'll see like all these analyst stories though. Industry is telling us we need to cut down on cloud spend. And then you get all these other analysts <clears throat> or especially, you know, maybe evangelists that work for cloud platform providers <laughs> that are like, no, it's all good. The truth is, Nothing is free, and especially the economic environment right now is everybody's looking more acutely, I was going to say aggressively, more like just like we're hyper aware of the, the risk to the business by just letting it run and letting it scale. So the, what have you seen in the last, you know, in your five months now here with Stormforge? of even the shift now in the customer, like that hyper-awareness of the cost of running in these scale architectures? Yeah, um, I think uh, when, and you know, five months is not that long, but even just given the current economic climate, things have been changing in those five months and where a lot of the conversations were around, okay, I don't know, not that I don't know my problem, but I don't know how much I'm overspending. I don't know what that cost is. And the initiatives were around getting a handle on what that number is and how big of a problem it is. I think now what we're seeing more is 
folks know that they need to get these numbers down. And so they're putting a lot more initiative into knowing and then how to actually fix it. And I think that's been really great so that our conversations have shifted from, okay, how do we help you identify how big of a problem this is in your environment and how much waste there is to, okay, you know, there's waste. Here's how we can help you fix it. And here's how we can continue to help you fix it. And that like, even in five months, that conversation has been shifting a lot. And you just hit the the it, the moment that everybody suddenly understands how difficult of a problem this is to solve is that we in technology, both as consumers and as providers, are in the risk business. That's really what we're in. We're in the outcome generating and risk business. Because when that person comes to you and they said, like, my CFO said, I need to cut my cloud bill by 30%. Well, then you can say, well, that's true, but you also put your applications at risk. You put your environment at risk by doing just that, by across the board reduction of 30%. Like, So what are the right places in which we can gather that efficiency and then using data to infuse that decision and justify where it can or cannot happen? That's that's the spot. That's the why this is such a complex problem to solve. And and you know, you're gonna have a long career solving that problem, which is fantastic because by being able to weigh out that risk against the trade-offs is really where the problem lies. And if we just say, like, yeah, I'm gonna I can cut my cloud bill by 80%, shut down a bunch of my stuff. <laughs> but guess what? The customers will call, like, I don't understand. Why is our shopping cart app just taking three minutes to turn around transaction. Like, oh yeah, that's that's a problem. Yeah, and you nailed it. That's exactly the challenge that organizations have today when it comes to fixing it. Because sure, if you reduce your uh, consumption, then you can cut down those costs, but you don't know how it's going to impact your application. Will it take it down? Will it slow things down? And that's where uh, when we work with customers, we have them define what are the important metrics to your business. We have things out of the box like performance and um, you know, P95, whatever you want to measure. But if you have certain things that you're like, I want to reduce this metric, this, for example, CPU or this uh, memory, and I want to make sure that I do that in a way where I'm not impacting a specific SLA for my business, then we allow you to uh, tweak and tune that because it's not just about reducing costs. It's about being efficient and continuing to provide the level of resiliency that you expect for your application. And that continuing to provide the same level of performance that your customers are expected um, to, to get when they use your application. And this is the, this is the fantastic merger of that thing of like the human problem and the, the machine problem where that's why I love in effect, you're a two-sided market in that you're provisioning, you're giving infrastructure decision opportunity and then you're taking into account the human factors that can drive it beyond just pure performance and and cost, but where they can they can actually influence the decisions based on constraints that they know that are business related, and and that's because some apps, yeah, it may be fine to have you know ten milliseconds, you know, your P ninety five latency, that's fine. But another app, it's like no, 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 at, at ten milliseconds, that means the app's down, and it's. The only way you can really do that is to give them a platform in which they can help to influence and guide that, that then the platform can make the decisions because 
you can't, the human can't continue to make the decision and you can't pour over your Grafana charts for the past month and go, okay, we got seven spikes, you know, that went to 22 milliseconds. Like what happened there? I don't know. <laughs> now this is the fun part, actually, Yasmin. Uh, so the real time piece, and I'm always, this is the other thing. You know, we talk about real time and it's always dangerous when you talk to database analysts about real time and they mean like, oh, like so sub second. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> real time in the platform ops world is like today sometime, maybe this hour, maybe 15 minutes. What's So what's, what is real time in kind of how the, the Stormforge solution does these, you know, evaluations? Yeah. Um, it For our platform, we let the user kind of define what in whether they're going deeper in experimentation or more the live um, updates. So on the live side, we pull in your observability data at a minute cadence and we provide those recommendations every five minutes. Um, where it becomes tunable for the users, how often they want to deploy those recommendations. And so uh, real time is really like, I don't love the phrase real time, but um, when when do they want the information and when do they want to be able to actually deploy the fixes for that? Uh, so that's what we allow them to tune. And then on the experimental, it's uh, more of a right now, I want to go deeper. And so run this experiment, go through all the trials and then give me the results. So it's more of a now versus a real time, um, yeah. which, you know, you could argue real time is also now. So it's all, all a little relative, but. Well, because technically, if you were to run that exact same experiment 24 hours later and the other factors have changed, you would get a different outcome, right? Like this is, it's not, you're not like Excel spreadsheet, like linear, you know, uh, relationship. Like you have more data that will infuse the decision into the decision, which means that you could technically get in even minutes apart uh, a different outcome. Like they aren't really going to vary hugely, but that's the importance of taking data up to the moment in order to create that, that right decision about resourcing. Yeah. And for us, uh, the ability to continuously take in that data for the recommendations when we're looking at production load is to your point, like that's going to change what it is today is going to be very different than what it could be tomorrow or even two hours from right now. And so we need to be continuously looking into that so that we're providing the right recommendations for end users. Um, I'm actually curious where, what are the sources of data that you're using out of the box? And then what other bonus uh, analytics can you push in that will help to actually influence the the outcome? Yeah. Um, so again, it's a little platform specific based on uh, what you're doing, but when you're in production, we can pull in data from Prometheus, uh, Datadog, look at the live production traffic, uh, whatever the metrics are that are coming out of that and feed that into the platform. On the experimental approach, there's really no limit to what data can be provided as an input. Out of the box, we have um, integrations with common performance testing tools. So like K6, for example, really any tool that you want, anything that generates data is something that we can consume in our platform. Uh, so you can run that experiment on any type of uh, workload that you'd like to run. And then in production, it's more what observability platforms do you have configured and then pulling metrics uh, directly from that. So if I were to run, if I want to do this sort of like pre-launch uh, you know, implementation test, I could, would I basically, I could set up a cluster and just like have this monstrous sort of Gatling run against it and, and try different, uh, you know, prefabricated test scenarios and then 
see what the results are and then you know ultimately have Stormforge give you the the desired resourcing? Yeah, so I'd say that's the proactive use case of, you know, you can throw whatever types of load, run those experiments, uh, see the results of the trials, and then decide what is the best configuration based on the, again, human input inputs of maybe you want something that is a little bit more expensive, but really uh, performant from a performance standpoint. You can look at the chart, make those trade-off decisions, and then choose the configuration that is best for you to deploy, deploy that into production. And then on the production side of things, we're looking again back to that in real time we're looking up to a minute pulling in that data and um making sure that we can continue to tune those recommendations yeah and, and like i said real time in the ops world in general is such a such a misnomer because we we've got a very different sense of real time you know like in transactional databases and in you know caching algorithms real time is real time <laughs> very different but you would on an on a platform outside you would not want to make decisions that rapidly because it there's enough that's why we do p95 versus p99 because that really changes how you influence decisions right exactly and we tell our users not to deploy um, the, our recommendations more than every hour because you don't want to reconfigure your uh, con your configuration settings every like five minutes. That would be really detrimental. So we uh, we pull in the data, but as far as making the recommendations, um, hourly is probably the best uh, minimum granularity. And then, um, for example, for workloads where you have an HPA deployed and you're kind of adding and removing. Uh, replicas as needed, then you can make those deployments every day and know that uh, you have tuned your HPA to be the most optimal that it can be, and then um, have your infrastructure kind of handle the resiliency. Now, when it comes to your own, you know, being in the product side and driving strategic product direction, what do you, how do you find the balance between that like you obviously have a Stormforge has a, a roadmap that you've got to influence, but you also have to weigh it against adoptability of features in the real world. So I'm, I'm just curious, what's your, what's your day-to-day, -day, you know, what's the right thing to put in the backlog and, and then the, the stuff that goes in that other backlog. <laughs> definitely a trade-off because then you have like the third and fourth backlog of, you know, what comes in from, uh, from a tech debt perspective as we want to scale an architect, uh, what comes in from a partnership perspective. So, we, you know, consolidating all the backlogs. Um, but I think the trade-off, or at least like our guiding vision is how can we make this as simple for the end user and not necessarily easier, but as simple to fit into their workflow. So mentioned before, like, I truly believe that we have the best solution, but you can have the best solution if you can't get that into the user's hands in the way that they want to consume software, then kind of doesn't matter. So a lot of our focus is how do we do that? How do we make it super, super simple for the user to get up and running, deployed, and um, per receiving recommendations that they can actually act on right away? Yeah, I often think of it, uh, I think it was a good tweet, you know, sort of meme back in the day, which was like, if you look at the, the GPS apps, you know, if you 
put it into Apple Maps. It was like we're going to take an artisanal drive along the coast, and we're going to go through the uh, the forest and and see some nice sunsets. So we'll time it well. And then you go into Google Maps, and it was like, yeah, we'll find the most optimal way. There's going to be 17 left turns, but trust me, it'll get you there faster. And then Waze was like, we're going to cut through this dude's backyard. Hold on, like they would go to this like nth level of optimization, but it was not human friendly. Like, you know, even that whole thing of there should be an option in every GPS to like cut down on the amount of left turns at a stop sign. Cause that sucks. Like it may seem optimal to the algorithm, but I do not want to turn left across four lanes of traffic. So there's a human experience. That's why I like the idea that you give the ability to apply constraints that are human and business constraints, but then the algorithm works within those confines to make decisions that then like over time, we may be like, yeah, okay, let's pull the, let's take the gates off. You know, let's, let's just let it go. And, and that's kind of cool. I, and actually, maybe that's a great question. What's been your, like, the thing that you saw happen where you're like, wow, I like, I didn't think that you were actually going to go for that. Like, what are the, what's the surprise thing that you found in a real environment where you're like, that's, you guys are doing some cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were working with a financial uh, customer actually, and we spent a lot of time with them on the types of inputs they want to put into the machine learning, the types of constraints they want to feel that human element of comfort. And, you know, when, when you're reducing costs, you want to know that you have control over what you're doing. And so we spent a lot of time on that. And then when it came down to deploy, they're like, we want to put this in automatic mode directly. Like, wow, across your entire cluster. And they're like, yep, we we see the value and um, we want to kind of flip the switch. And I think I was a little surprised just coming from the old days where even just that puppet getting people to run in an, um, an op mode versus a no op mode and actually let the system deploy their changes. But I think that level of confidence that we had given the user to be able to provide the constraints and see how the machine learning would do something before actually deploying those changes, that confidence was super important to the relationship. So I, there's this like mystery in machines that humans at the end of the day want to make sure that they understand what how predictable the results are going to be. And that's hard with machine learning because the point is it's supposed to do the prediction. So I think that was probably a... I was very surprised that they went like all automatic in um in across their entire cluster. It's always a weird thing too because at, like you don't want to sound like but in exactly. in your mind you're like really? <laughs> it's so cool when you when they do that level of adoption and that trust but it's like cuz you know like obviously you're confident in the outcome but you're like it is kind of it's this fun sort of even a trepidation because then all you think is like, wow, okay. Because that changes your future for this customer. Now you're like, what do I do that's that's next level for them? And because you know, like they're further into the adoption cycle and like, this is going to be exciting because now they're actually going to diverge from most environments in that they've gone to full automation. So now you as a product strategy, you know, and, and products, you know, developer and product manager, you now are starting to actually see the split in personas and, and use cases, which is both, you know, complex. It's cool because that means you've got a diversity of, of customer base, but it also means that like, oh, 
I put got to put feature flags in and switches and and options and stuff that I I just didn't think I would have to deal with yet. Yeah, it means we have to manage an experience for both types of users because I think that conservative user is never going to go away. Um, there's still going to be people that want to watch. They want to have control over when things are deployed and how. Um, and we need to enable that because it's just uh, a natural thing for people to want to uh, be able to do. That's not going to go away, but that doesn't mean that that's the only workload. That's a, a way to do it. So for the automatic side that we want to make sure that people, we continue to give them the confidence. So I think that's where the user experience um, gets interesting because you want to give the same level of confidence. It's not like one needs it more than the other. But once you do flip the switch and you're comfortable with automatic, how do we ensure that we're continuing to give you that level of confidence? And it's like a no pressure, you know, things can't go wrong at this point because we've gained that confidence. We don't want to lose it. It's so easy to lose that confidence from uh, customers. So uh, that is something that we actively uh, think through of how do these experiences diverge um, and how do we make sure that we're doing the right thing for both user types? Yeah, it becomes a thing of, it's like they say, user experience, a Good user experience isn't noticeable. A bad one is. Exactly. And it's getting someone to adopt something and turn on automation is fantastic. But the moment that it goes sideways, you have 10 steps to get them back to that point, not one, because they're like, mm, we had a problem once. And that's the weird thing is like, I've had people are like, hey, didn't one time there was a time we turned on automation and then it like blew up the SQL server because it kept like taking more memory. You're like, you know, those was three years ago. Yeah, like we've there's been like 17 product updates specifically around this and Microsoft fixed a problem and like, you're like, you're cool. But they will remember like, yeah, I remember the time I stubbed my toe on the Ottoman. Yeah, I don't like Ottomans anymore. You're like, it's not, it wasn't yep. the Ottoman's fault, but you will never buy an Ottoman again because of that. <laughs> and no one talks about the hundred other times where automation saved the day. They only just remember the time where eh, something went wrong. Totally, totally. Now, another interesting thing in your own background, because you came from, you know, living the experience, you know, as an SRE prior to that, you, you've done TA work, you've been very user engaged and user focused. And one of the other things that's funny, one of the certifications that jumped out at me that I was like, okay, Yasmin gets this. You did pragmatic marketing not product manager, not whatever, like you're doing product management, you're doing product strategy. You've lived a real life behind the desk environment running SRE, but you, you see the user engagement as such an important thing. That's what I read to it. So how, how did, what made you make those choices around how you engage with people? Yeah. It's, uh, so I think I've had a funny little career. Uh, I started out, I went to business school. Um, and at the time I was really determined that I wanted to go into more of statistical marketing and understand like what drives users to purchase different things. Um, and interesting route for me, but then I un, like developed a desire to learn how to do scripting. And I happened to fall into an internship where I started learning more um, programming and I realized that I liked that. And for me, it was all about being able to empath empathize, that's always a hard word for me, yeah. with the end user. So going into, after I graduated from business school, I went to, I was a software developer. And at the time that was not necessarily the thing I wanted to do long-term, but I knew I wanted to be in the IT space and I wanted to understand it from the ground up, like understand what 
the pain points are like really get into a hands-on keyboard, what that looked like. And so for whatever reason, I think for me in my career, it's always been more helpful to understand what that other person is going through to be able to build software for them or uh, back in my staples day, like build the right dashboards, build the right instrumentation for our customers, which were um, the end users. And so I think that level of, for example, marketing, like then I can work very closely with my marketing partners to understand what is it that they need for us to be able to make our product successful? Because it's not just uh, to our earlier points, it's not just building the right software. It's how do you get it into the hands of users? So how do users actually see the value of that? How do we talk with our sales teams on translating that value to the end users? So I think it requires a lot of being in the other person's shoes. And while I haven't had the opportunity to do all those roles, I've had the opportunity to work very closely with people in those uh, roles. And so understanding what is important to them, I think really helps build good software and good products, because if you understand what they need, then you can provide what they need and vice versa. So that partnership makes it really successful. That's cool. Yeah. I, I, uh, I studied a lot of behavioral psychology myself and, and people often ask me like, what's the, what are the like most impactful books you have around learning technology? And I say, well, thinking fast and slow for one, you know, behavioral economics was, there's a reason why behavioral psychologists changed the face of economics because Kahneman and Tversky ultimately unpacked real experiments that realized that behavior drove algorithmic results that differed greatly from how it should. The numbers don't work. doesn't make sense, uh, but it's true. You know, when we add human experience to it and, you know, Ray Dalio is famous sort of in his sort of algorithmic approach to behavior. Some people say a little too much uh, because they're a little bit more algorithm driven, but, um, and the other one is, uh, let's say DSM four or DSM five now, I guess is the the statistical uh, manual of disorders. <laughs> if you learn how people break, you learn how they work. And it really, truly is a human experience in the end, which is which is cool. And uh, in the, even the little time that we've had a chance to spend time, Yasmin, you you present a human experience that's very good. And and I appreciate how you approach things and and why I'm I'm long Stormforge, you know, on what your capabilities are. And and you yourself, you know, you've obviously shown that you you earned your spot here, and and you continue to earn it in every customer interaction. So uh, I definitely see a lot of cool stuff coming up for, for you and what's going on. And speaking of, you got, although at the time of recording, people may listen at different times, you've got Dash, so you've got the Datadog Summit you're presenting there. You've got KubeCon right after that. You are be a busy human for a little while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, be on the roadshow. But honestly, this is my favorite part of being in product, talking to users. And so I'm really looking forward to, I, I think the last few events I've attended have all been virtual. So I'm really looking forward to getting in person, talking to users, hearing their perspective. Uh, that's my favorite part about the job. So I'm definitely excited about it, even though it'll be a little tiring, you know, getting, going to New York, Detroit, all the places, but yeah, I'm yeah it is a, it is so different. Like the zoom experience for events is why I just, it just failed fundamentally because even for like like business operations, right? While we, we can get it done that way in the same way that, look, I could get to New York from where I live by walking, but it's not a most, not the efficient way to do it. Right. I going there 
Cause it's not the five minutes that you get. If you book 15 minutes with somebody and like, I just want to like run a use case by you. And they're like, that's great. But what really matters is when they're sitting there on the floor with you and you're like, Oh, cool. I see you've got this really funky water bottle and you're like, you know, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I got this, you know, because I would, I, I did an Ironman. You're like, oh yeah, I do, uh, I do cycling, and you, know, and all of a sudden, you find yourself having a new conversation with them, and then sometimes they're like, hey, so I've got a question, and now they're like super comfortable because the real genuine experience occurred, and then they're more likely to share real insights into what they're doing day to day, and it's so much better because everybody's just like your guard goes down and we feel comfortable and relaxed as a group. That's why community, you know, kind of needs us to be physically present uh, as well as to share common goals. It's, it is truly those two things. So. Yeah. The, the 15 minutes that you mentioned just feel so transactional, but building a relationship human to human, uh, there's nothing like it, like us meeting in cloud field day, the uh, conversations that we had having this conversation now, those things, they don't really come out of a 15 minute quick sync. Right. Yeah. That's why people always ask like, why do you do like your podcast is going to be really long. And I'm like, trust me, it's, it's worthwhile because when I originally started, it was a 30 minute podcast. And what I found was like, if I listened to, if you went on five 30 minute podcasts, they're going to be almost the same podcast every time because they generally have to start with the same set of questions. And what I found was at 35 minutes or so, when you ask a question based on stuff you learned in the first 30 minutes, it almost, there's always this point and you could probably go back and I could find it. And where someone goes like, Oh, hmm, that's interesting. And like, like there's no stock answer at that point. And you're like, Oh, cool. Like you're actually, we are actually exploring a real conversation now, which is, which is kind of cool. And, and, and I love about it. So thank you again. So Yasmin, what's the best way if people want to reach you uh, and the Stormforge team, of course, I'll have links below to, to Stormforge and, and such. And then you're going to be a reInvent. You've got DashCon for people that are listening in time to get there. You've got KubeCon in beautiful Detroit, Michigan. I say it, you know, tongue in cheek, because I've, I've lived in, I lived in Toronto, which was close enough to Detroit. My dad used to work at a at a hotel system. So I used to go to Detroit all the time. And uh, so, yeah, not a, not a big tourist destination, but uh, surprisingly it's cool to see more and more conferences getting there because the city's trying to kind of raise the, raise the population a bit and, and bring it back up, which is kind of cool. Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, I've been to Windsor, Canada. So it's nice. always a funny place <laughs> that it's below uh, the U S but that's right. <laughs> We yeah, will. it's a weird thing that it's like the most southern. It's like people often say, like, like when I lived, you know, even like looking at the map. When I say I'm going to be, you know, going down to, you know, say I'm going down to Boston. Well, I'm technically going up to Boston because <laughs> I'm in New Jersey. But like, you forget, I like, like I for some reason always draw everything on a horizontal line. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we'll be, uh, we'll be at Dash, uh, we'll be at KubeCon, we'll be at Reinvent. So we'll have a booth at um, all three of those. So if people are interested in stopping by. Um, I can be contacted at yasmin at stormforge.io. So super uh, simple, hopefully. And then um, I'm also on Twitter, uh, yasmin with two N's X13. So if people have any questions and want to reach out, I'd be happy to have a, have a conversation. All right. Now I got to ask the story because everybody's Twitter handle has a reason. Mine is weird because I comes from like an old band. And so Disco Posse was just kind of a thing, you know, that sort of stuck. And it was no one had Disco Posse anywhere. So it was easy to get the domain. Uh, so Yasmin with an extra N and a 13, tell me about that one or X 13. 
Uh, so 13 is my birthday. It's definitely like the number that's, uh, that I have on everything. Um, not on my password. So don't worry. Um, <laughs> I going to say every security person's just like, Oh yeah, yeah. no, I, I can promise not in there. Um, or maybe it is, you know, you don't know. Keep maybe. Um, two ends. That's a very good question. I think maybe one end was taken at the time, but that's a really unique thing to be taken. There's not, there's a decent amount of Yasmin, so not a ton of them. So um, I remember at the time my full name was taken. So I went with this and X was a trend at some point to split the name and the number. And I just stuck with it ever since. There you go. Yeah. It's uh, it's always, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, especially when you put a number in there, it's quite often this thing, you know, I got a one friend, he's like, you know, it's the number on his, on his Twitter handle is because he's got, he says it ends up in a five. Cause I got five kids. I'm like, what happens if you have a six kid, do you change your handle? Like, <laughs> he's like, no, yeah, yeah. I'm sticking with this one. So <laughs> it is always fun to hear this. Right. And other times it's just like, yeah, I just kind of like mushed the keyboard and this, this came out. So, uh, and it works. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Yasmin, thank you very much. This has been a blast. And for folks, of course, go check out Stormforge. Uh, uh, follow the links below. And uh, and uh, yeah, this is cool. And I'm looking forward to. We'll see each other at reInvent, and uh, and uh, it'll be it'll be fun to chat there because oh boy, is there going to be a lot going on? Big conference. It's going to be going to be tiring, but so so enjoyable. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, can't wait to see you. And thank you for having me on the podcast. All right.